Welcome to the Afghanistan Project podcast, where we delve into some of the most pressing concerns facing the people of Afghanistan, highlight individuals from around the world and across the political spectrum who have stepped up to render assistance to our Afghan allies and raise the voices of the many people who have been endangered by the Taliban's oppressive rule. I'm Beth Bailey here with my co-host, Michael Cook. Today, we are thrilled to host Alexa Greenwald, who works with the nonprofit organization Uplift Afghanistan. Alexa is a graduate of the University of Chicago and has a master's degree from the London School of Economics. She has more than five years of experience in Afghanistan and has worked on the issues of governance, gender, health, migration, research, and monitoring and evaluation in both Pakistan and Afghanistan for Sayara International. Through Sayara International, Alexa also helped to evacuate more than 1,200 Afghans from their homeland between August and December of 2021. Alexa, we're excited to hear about your work in evacuation and in continuing to support Afghans living in precarious situations today. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Alexa, I've been really excited for this episode and uh, when you agreed to come on. Um, obviously, you were, you know, played a huge role in the evacuation up in uh, Mazar Sharif after uh, the fall of Kabul. And uh, one of my families was on that flight, which you know, and you know, we were able to connect in DC a little bit um, after the evacuation, but I haven't seen you since. So uh, I know we're gonna, we have a lot to talk about, including the evacuation, but I guess if we could just like bounce back a little bit and talk about, you know, how you got involved in Afghanistan in the first place. Sure, well, it's great to see you again, and it's great to be with both of you here. Um, so how I got involved in Afghanistan, I, I had been introduced to Sayara International and their work, and I was working um, in similar sectors, but in, in Europe, um, in the CVE fields uh, beforehand. And so I was introduced to Sayara International, and I was very interested in what they were doing in Afghanistan. Um, and this was in 2016. So it was obviously, a, I mean, the last 40 years have been a challenging time for the country, but I think um things were obviously escalating and it was just i was really fascinated about their goal and and the fact that they were working in a context that was so challenging but trying to push forward some of these um you know what we can consider nation building goals but some of which at the time i really believed in <laughs> and that's changed um but I essentially reached out to them and they hired me in a, a program manager position to begin with. So I was um, working on a number of their, their governance programs, um, their gender programs, some M&E projects there. And then uh, my roles evolved over time and I became regional manager. And so I was looking after both Afghanistan and Pakistan um, and spending a decent amount of time in, in both countries. And it was um, an, a pretty incredible experience all the way through. Yeah. What kind of goals did your programs in those countries have at the time? Uh, so our biggest project, um, our biggest, yeah, sorry. <laughs> our biggest project um, was a essentially stabilization and governance project. And that's kind of a term that's fallen out of fashion in the international development field. But we were working directly with local government officials in districts that were um, contested or had Taliban influence um, sort of infiltrating. And so this was funded by the U.S. Embassy. And 
we were trying to not only engage the local population, so engage with the women, engage with the youth through youth focused programming, um, but then also engaging with local government officials to try and improve their essentially strategic communications capacity. So really improving the visibility of the Afghan government. Um, and yeah, <laughs> um, something that obviously failed. But I think we had incremental successes, of course. And I think that's really the story of the, the US um, effort is that there were incremental successes, but that they didn't amount to um, overall successes. And clearly the Taliban were much better at doing what we were doing. <laughs> so um, for, for many different reasons, but that was essentially, we, we did that across 11 provinces. And I think if my memory is correct, about 32 districts. And that was one of the U.S. Embassy's sort of longest running projects. Um, and um, yeah, as I said, we, we had some successes, but obviously in retrospect, it's sort of a challenging project to reflect on now. Um, but that project also put quite a few of our employees at risk because it was such an adversarial um, goal in the eyes of the opposition, right? So that was one of the main reasons we were so concerned when when Kabul fell. Mm -hmm. What was it like being a American woman civilian in Afghanistan? This question is always challenging um, because I want to be so aware of the privilege you come in with as a as a foreigner, as a Westerner. So my experience as a woman is obviously so different in some ways, um, but I actually had an incredibly positive experience. And there may be lots of responses to that of like, well, that's because of your these certain privileges. And that's true, of course, that that does play a part. But um, my colleagues were incredibly welcoming. Um, their families, some of whom were really conservative, were incredibly welcoming. Some of whom even had maybe sympathies in other places were still really welcoming. Um, and that's really the nature of Afghan culture. It's, in, it's the most hospitable place I've ever been. Um, and once you're kind of, once you're a guest, like you're a guest. And I think that that is something that um, you know, that has played such a role in the internal political and also geopolitical dynamics of, of the country. But for me, it was really incredible because obviously you're told before you go, my company did a really good job. They didn't scare us. Um, our CEO actually was like, don't do hostile environment awareness training because it will scare you and <laughs> you won't want to go. And I actually like think that that was really good advice because I really wasn't afraid in some time. I mean, of course, a little bit, but I didn't have um, some of these security briefings that other people would get before they would go in the country. And of course, you'd be really, really scared. And I would speak to some of my friends or counterparts who counterparts who worked in the UN compound. And sometimes I would meet with them. Like one time I went to Bangkok for a conference on an elimination of violence against women program. And I was doing, um, Sayara was doing the monitoring and evaluation for that program. So we were working with five different implementing partners, including UN agencies. 
And the people from the UN were like, it's getting really bad. This was 2018. And I was about to travel to Kabul just after that conference. And they being around them really kind of freaked me out. And I was very stirred up and I landed and I was like very on guard, very freaked out. And then I settled back in and I would just, my point is I always was made to feel incredibly at home, incredibly welcome, really like I was part of the, the family in the office and it became this very contradictory experience where of course my positionality as an American was complex, but um, I, I felt almost more at home than I did in the US in wow. some ways. So there's a lot more reflection to do there, but. Sure, and, and now you're with uh, an organization called Uplift Afghanistan, correct? And can you tell us a little bit about what uh, you guys do? Sure. So Uplift Afghanistan, the, the full name is the Uplift Afghanistan Fund, and we say Uplift for short. And this is <clears throat> truly one of the most incredible organizations that I've been able to, to contribute to. And I, I try and say that completely. Obviously, I'm biased, but um, working in the development sector, you really see how well-intentioned things are and yet there's an incredible amount of waste inefficiency someone in washington or london or you know brussels making plans and strategic goals for a country and then when that actually trickles down inside the country through the companies that are trying to make money bid on those projects ngos that are just trying to keep running by the time that those goals and ways of achieving those goals actually trickle down into real implementation, it's not always A, the most efficient use of money and B, very effective. And I think that that's a real lesson learned in the aftermath of the international community being in Afghanistan for 20 years is really looking at how international development is conducted. And obviously that's a conversation that's been happening specifically like in the UK, they've had a lot of reorganizations of how DFID, now FCDO, operate. And I think the EU is also doing a lot of work on that. Um, I would maybe encourage the American side also to be, I know that there's a there's a continued effort to look at that, but I think it really needs to be looked at quite closely. And so that working in this sort of development space um, is, I would say, humanitarian adjacent, but it's not direct humanitarian aid always. Um, sometimes you're supporting direct humanitarian efforts, but it's it's more um, the, the nation building side of things. And so Uplift Afghanistan is direct humanitarian aid. And I would say um, it grew up out of the evacuation. So it was born on August 14th, 2021. And there was a group of really incredible Afghan women who were living, uh, whose families had resettled in Western countries when they were young. And so they saw what was happening to their country and recognized the resources and capacities that they had to do something about it. And so they got together really quickly and kind of jumped in to start developing a, a model to help. And I think they are really an example of um, how to do things quickly, and adaptably, um, but also really make a big a big impact. And that's not to say that there aren't. Of course, there's there's you know hiccups in every organization. 
but they um, they've delivered millions of dollars in aid directly to Afghans um, since August 15, 2021, all throughout the challenges of getting money into the country. They've they managed to do that. Um, they've supported flood relief efforts, earthquake relief efforts. Um, they've administered food packages in some of the remote areas, winter packages. We know that Afghans um, are really struggling throughout the winter months. Um, and the way they do that is they work through trusted, vetted local partners. And so they develop these relationships with Afghans who are still on the ground running really small NGOs um, and focusing on these direct humanitarian goals. And they work through them, um, through microgrants, essentially. So that's been a, a huge success over the last year and a half. And I can't, I have had no role in that. That was that was uplift. Um, the, the way I was introduced to them was through the evacuations. And so Alaha Omar, who is the executive director, was actually supporting um, Sayara, Sayara's evacuation effort um, through some translation. And it was an amalgamation of organizations, as you can imagine. And so um, I know, Michael, you're aware of this, but someone would just kind of be thrown in the mix and you're like, great, <laughs> how yeah. can you help? And so Alaha was one of those. Um, and that's how we were introduced. And so in May of last year, we started a Pakistan portfolio, essentially. So I've been working with a very small team of Afghan refugees themselves. So our entire team are um, displaced Afghans, aside from me. And we uh, we work together to essentially assess the needs, like really what are the, the real needs, um, and basically deliver a report <laughs> to, to headquarters and devised some key key priorities. So those are education. Um, we did do food distribution, so like direct sort of poverty, hunger relief. Um, education was a huge need. So that's our biggest priority right now is delivering education to Afghan refugee children who in Pakistan really don't have ability to access the public schools or afford the private schools. And of course, this is incredibly, this is the number one um, this is the number one sort of piece of feedback we had when we did, when we had conversations. I don't even want to say we surveyed. We did survey, but it was really just having conversations with an attempted representative sample of different communities in Islamabad to understand what are these families suffering from the most? And the parents were saying our children are not being, their education has halted and what will their future look like? We don't necessarily know where our future is, whether it's in Pakistan, whether it's in a third country, and what are our children to do in the meantime. So it was affecting the parents' well-being. It was affecting the children, of course, because they're staying home all day. Um, and so we started schools. We hired teachers from the Afghan refugee community. Um, and we've um, we developed a curriculum that we now really need to improve, but we're essentially iterating as we go along. So that's our largest project here. And then we're also administering micro-grants specifically to support um, the economic abilities of women, because a lot of them are, most Afghans here are not able to work. And so it's really challenging. They're living on dwindling savings. Um, you can imagine how uncertain and scary that would be. Um, but there's so many skills inside the Afghan community, in particular among women. So we've been funding some um, some small 
projects to help them generate some income. Yeah, and you know we have a show email here where people can email us and tell us their stories. And I'd say the biggest group of people that we hear from are Afghans that are in Pakistan waiting on P1 or P2 visas to process. Um, and you have a very unique perspective of this because you're actually there, right? So can you tell us, you know, what is it like for these Afghans that are just waiting in Pakistan? Yeah, um, I think this is aside from what actually happened during the evacuation effort. I think this is sort of the the second tragedy, the knock on tragedy. There's so many Afghans who had P1 and P2 applications, and obviously a prerequisite of P2 is that you are in a third country for at least a year. And so many Afghans have moved here knowing that that was a requirement of being eligible for this program, and it's been well over a year. Um, they aren't able to work. They have no sort of certainty about the P2 program. I think we, even Americans who are following this, have very little certainty about the P2 program. Um, and I mean, I, I could be unaware of some developments, but I think writ large, there's a lot of uncertainty. The SIV program is moving along um, in Pakistan somewhat slowly, in Afghanistan more quickly. Um, but at least there's some certainty that there are, you know, there are steps. Afghans are aware of those steps. They reach points in the process. And that clarity is just not offered for P1 and P2. And many, I would say the majority, um, have not even received case numbers. And so they're essentially here, um, maybe having been given false hope that eventually they will be brought to the US. Maybe not. I, I would like to think that that's not false hope. Um, but it's really, I think, <laughs> a shame on the side of the US government that the, that more clarity is, is not offered. I think there is a failure of duty of care. There is a failure of once again, the promise that was made to, to US allies. And there are some people here who are very much at risk and very much meet the eligibility requirements of of being brought to the US and provided protection. Yeah. And after more than a year, they are still here in limbo without any support. And I think that's, again, a, a tragedy. I can't come up with another word for it. Yeah. I just don't understand what we're expecting them to do. You know, I, if they can't work, they have children that aren't at school. Like, what? what is our government actually expecting these people to do? And have you actually heard of any P1 and P2 applicants getting out? Okay. I've heard I've of heard of, oh, sorry, go ahead, Beth. Back in the day, I've only heard of a few, and they got to Europe, but they did not get to the U.S. But that was not through U.S. efforts, right? That was never they, made clear to me whether they got there through processing with the U.S. or not. And that's the thing is there's so little information about yeah. what happened in your cases. I've heard of maybe three Afghans out of hundreds I know personally and thousands I know through association that, you know, talking to other people in this in this sphere that have even received case numbers. So. That means that there is just an application languishing out there somewhere, and they just have no idea. They don't have an ability to check up on it. There's no ability to plan for their future. And you're right, Michael, I have no idea what, what we're expected to do. And actually, <laughs> I we were contacted by the US Embassy um, 
you know, they were asking about our programming. They were saying, what are you what are you doing with with the um, Afghan refugee community? And then we sort of gave them information, hoping, OK, great, like you're you're looking to help potentially um, focusing on these P1, P2 applicants, you know, giving some kind of support while they're waiting. And <laughs> the response was, no, no, we're just collecting information. There's no funding or support available right now. We're like, great. <laughs> and I will say, sorry to interrupt you, but I will say, I know that the US government is giving quite a bit of money to Pakistan for the, um, for the purpose of Afghan refugees, but that is directed towards UNHCR and towards the Pakistani government. Um, and that is in my humble opinion and what I've seen on the ground and what Afghans experience, that is not an efficient, that is not ending up in Afghans hands. I'll just say that. Yes, I was going to ask you if you had heard most of um, the P1 and P2 applicants who speak to me say that they have petitioned the UNHCR to get refugee status and that they never hear back and that they don't get refugee status, which means that um, they have to renew their visas and continue doing those things. But Pakistan is pushing them out now actively because visas are are expiring and and these Afghans are just languishing. Um, is there a population among those P1 and P2 applicants that might be more disproportionately affected than others, maybe women or other parts of that population? Um, women in particular, especially young women. So I have personally met and know of quite a few um, female journalists, young women who are here completely alone, either didn't have parents or have lost parents in the last two years or supporting their younger siblings on their own and have no ability to work. And I think this is the precarity of the situation of displaced Afghans in Pakistan cannot be overemphasized. Um, the visa process, like Pakistan is granting them visas to their credit. I don't, I mean, I, I think there is something to be said. The Pakistani, the Pakistani government has has softened a little bit. Um, it sort of goes in waves, um, but they have granted certain visas. But they are, I will say, using it as a a method to make money, and so they are overcharging Afghans for housing. The visa costs are astronomical. Um, not on the website itself, if you go on the website, it's the equivalent of $8, but in reality, what you actually have to do to get these processed is very costly. And so Afghans have to spend what little money they have to continue to extend their visas. UNHCR says that they're incredibly overwhelmed. I and other counterparts here in Pakistan have tried to reach out to UNHCR, I've tried to collaborate, I've tried to understand what the issues are. There's no willingness to to expose any of their processes, to, to, to collaborate. It's a very, very closed environment. Um, and we've seen very little sort of real efforts on the ground. Um, and I know that that sounds harsh, but it's, it's the reality. Um, on paper, there are some things that they say that they have done, but in reality, how effective those initiatives are is, is quite, um, it's, the outcomes are much less um, in proportion to the money that's being spent. 
Um, so they're not getting official refugee status. They're having to continue to spend money on visas, which may or may not come through. And that essentially leaves them vulnerable to harassment from police. So then police can harass them and say, you don't have a real visa. They essentially extort Afghans for the money um, because they know they can do that. Um, and then there's also this larger fear of deportation, which the Pakistani government has continued to threaten. So um, you can only imagine the level of fear, uncertainty, um, extortion that's happening. And it's incredibly, it's a huge, it's a huge problem. And then particularly for young women who don't feel safe leaving the house, especially if they don't have um, the, you know, fully legal status, there's no ability for them to work because here you have to have a work visa to work. And so they're sort of scraping by. Honestly, I don't know how some of these women are, are getting by. I really, I really don't. Uplift tries to help as much as we can, but the need is obviously much bigger than we can address. And there were quite a few women who did have US sponsors previously. Um, so women that worked for ISAF or who were journalists and were supported by you know, private donors or private organizations, but that's now dwindled. And I don't blame those organizations or sponsors. I don't blame them at all. They really stepped up, um, but that support is now dwindling. And so I would say there is a, I can see there is a desire to forget the Afghan issue, but I would say it's actually more important than ever because um, because that support is not there. It's being retracted from the country and Afghans are left more vulnerable and more uncertain than ever. For those people that are in Pakistan waiting on P1 and P2, do you, is there any advice that we can give to these people? As hard as it has been to do this, um, and I learned this through the evacuations, is that giving false hope is actually far more damaging, in my opinion, because it leads people to make decisions that may not actually be, that they wouldn't have made if they had had all the information. So people come to Pakistan, they sell their homes, they sell everything they have in Afghanistan. They come to Pakistan and then with the expectation that they're going to leave. And that may never happen. Um, and would they have left? Would they have sold everything? Would they have, you know, um, maybe exposed some information because they had to in order to get out that they wouldn't have otherwise? Probably not. And so I think what I have been saying, as hard as it is, I've been saying don't rely on these programs. Like don't, don't expect that these are going to come through, which, as an American feels like a horrific thing to say. And I don't, you know, I always accompany that with, I am so sorry, but this is just yeah. uh, a failure on the U S government's part. Yep. But I yep. think, I think being really realistic um, is actually the, the almost kindest thing to do right now, just so that people can have all the information and plan accordingly. Sure. What about for populations who are at extreme risk if they do decide to, you know, uh, you know, be realistic eventually is going to mean go back to Afghanistan and resume the life that you had there. But there are some populations in P1 and P2 who just can't do that. They will. Um, prosecutors have been targeted and killed. Members of the Afghan uh, special forces or uh, pilots or anyone who worked with the military now that Taliban are said to be accumulating kill lists 
of those people um, actively in some areas, especially in the north of Afghanistan. So what about for those people? Is that something that the U.S. government needs to prioritize quickly to make sure that we don't have any more major loss of life? Yes, <laughs> I think um, I think sort of trying to promote realistic expectations among some of the people that may not be at direct risk, um, like in terms of being on a being on a kill list. Um, I think that feels like the the approach right now. But for that group of people, for um, journalists who are well known for um, you know, key allies of the U.S. effort. I, I don't want to be too specific to, to protect their identities, but for those people, there is no other option. They cannot go back to Afghanistan. Staying here in Pakistan is not safe, is incredibly precarious also. Um, and the U.S. has, <laughs> we talk about our moral responsibility. This is something that has been brought up over the last few years. And I think if we really want to follow through on a shred of that, rhetoric, um, we would um, process those P1 cases very quickly. Um, and I think I think it's also incredibly unstrategic. So not only is it a moral failure, that's that's one thing. it's a that's the biggest thing. It's a huge moral failure. But it's also I know people who have skills that Taliban want. They were allied with the US. No one helped them even though their case was made very clear to US authorities, mm -hmm. their skills were made very clear to US authorities, and they have now gone back and joined Taliban because they have no other option. Yeah. And so they have intelligence, they have information that was given to them by the US because they worked with the US. The US didn't protect them. And now that information is going to, um, to Taliban. and inevitably to groups that are direct US adversaries. Um, so I just think, you know, I'm I'm not in the government. I'm not a decision maker. I have no, I'm not in the military, but to me, it seems incredibly obvious and incredibly unstrategic to not prioritize these people. Um, and it's just a little bit shocking how um, I want to come up with a diplomatic word. <laughs> the the failure of that is quite shocking. Yeah, it's 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 pretty shocking. And it's I mean, it's it's almost hard to blame these people that are going to the Taliban that, you know, that we left behind. It's like, what what else are they going to do? You know, it's a paycheck and a lot of them probably got threatened to be in that situation. Ab no, absolutely. And and really tried, like really tried other avenues, um, but they were this that was the safest option for them like that was really the only option for them at the end of the day right um, and i know some cases like personally and yeah <laughs> i don't blame them at all it was yeah. it was what they had to do to survive it's incredible I, I, like, I feel like i say this every episode but like myself as a u.s soldier it's just so mind-boggling to me that we have, are just leaving these people to die you know, these people stood stood with us for 20 years, um, served our country a lot more than most Americans have. And here they are just sitting ducks. It's crazy. So what is I mean, what is the government's um, what are they saying as to why it's, it's taking so long to process P1, P2s? Do we know? 
I actually don't. I don't, I don't know. I know that um, this has been a key priority of Senator Blumenthal and he has really been pushing this. His team has really been pushing this. Um, I would imagine, like if I'm venturing a guess, and this is just a, a guess, I would imagine that um, um, what we were hearing <laughs> during the evacuations and thereafter was like, we're working on it. We're doing the best we can. We only have so many resources, et cetera, et cetera. So I would imagine that um, what they're saying is that the institutions inside the US responsible for processing people coming are overburdened. Um, the associating NGOs are overburdened. And I'm sure that's true. And, and part of that is because of the gutting that happened during the previous administration. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think that that's a, a a reasonable excuse, personally. I've heard it posited um, by some people in um, US government adjacent organizations that the Pakistani government does not want P1 and P2 to begin processing in their country because those who are not accepted will then be refugees in Pakistan. And Pakistan does not want to host more refugees than it already well, permanently host refugees. And that that's the problem is there are no real answers. And so all we're left with are suppositions. And I think this is something I've been asking the US government every few months. What are the numbers on P1, P2? What are the expectations? And they can never give an answer. And it is infuriating for each of those 22,600 applicants that are sitting there waiting and going through so much difficulty right now. So good for you guys trying to do these things that make a, a, an impact, educating their children, making sure that they feel like someone is listening. I think that's so important. Yeah, for sure. I would love to hear about some of your work with Sayara doing evacuations. When did you start doing that work? Was that directly prior to the evacuations in August or did you guys spin up on that far in advance? No, no, this was a spur of the moment effort. Um, so I, um, I've been living in Pakistan since 2020, but I had some projects in Afghanistan that I was traveling back and forth for. And I was there um, in the very beginning of August 2021. So like August 2nd, and then I left on August 11th. And even when I, I mean, which was an incredibly potent time to be there. But I will say, even when I left the airport, like I was in Hamid Karzai on August 11th, and it was as it was always, it was totally normal. Um, and even then, like there was still this sense of they are approaching, but, and it's probably inevitable. There was a real sense of like doom and gloom, but, um, and obviously different people have different, you know, I, I've spoken to, to colleagues in the U.S. who were like, oh no, we knew by then that it was happening. It was so clear. But I would say inside Afghanistan um, and some of the, the journalists I was connected to were essentially saying, and I think even Taliban <laughs> were saying like December, <laughs> December, December. So um, like Taliban were saying, we're, we're not even ready. Um, and everything just happened very quickly for reasons, um, I think, very complex reasons. So I left on August 11th, which was an incredibly 
difficult decision at the time. Um, I had been working with my colleagues for five years. Many of them were my my dear friends. I knew them very, very well. And there was like a very, I was very torn, right? I was like, I don't know if I should leave. I think it's months away. So I could potentially come back and do something. If it's not months away, I might be more harm than than good. Like being an American sitting in an office is probably not very helpful. Um, and so, and actually our office was sort of raided on August 15th. So it was probably better that I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, and um, so I came back to Pakistan and essentially just watched each day this get worse. And by um, August, my, my memory is a little bit um, shaky here, but I think it was August 14th. I called the Sayara CEO and I was actually really, I was like, you haven't sent out an email. You haven't done anything. There has been no, like, we are watching this happening before our eyes. And I was really incensed. <laughs> and he was like, don't worry. I have a plan. I am working on it. And he had totally been in action over the last few days, but just hadn't been communicating it. And so by the time we got in touch, he was like, I have money for charter planes. We're going to get everyone out. And he's he is an incredibly galvanizing personality. And that was so critical to this effort. He was really the North Star in a way. Um, and so he was just like, we can do this. And he was really positive all the way through. When I think a lot of, I was I was incredibly doom and gloom, others of my colleagues. So Sayara essentially assembled on August 15th. Um, and I think, we were a little bit of a unique operation because we had, we were very small, so we could be nimble. Like we knew our employees on the ground incredibly well. Um, and I think that was maybe a little bit different than some of the larger organizations. That was a question that people put out, like there are some really huge, well-resourced companies and organizations in Afghanistan that weren't able to get their people out. And I think actually a really critical point was that we were small enough that the the trust and the communication levels and lines were really there with our team on the ground. Um, and then we just were working across all time zones. So I was in Pakistan, so just 30 minutes ahead. Then we had key team members in Europe, and then we had key team members in the US. And so we sort of could work around the clock. And then just in terms of like networks. So we had, you know, um, members of the team who were all sort of executive management of, of Sayara who had contacts within the State Department and that was helpful. Um, and then we had, um, Sayara had Afghan leadership. And so our president who was Afghan was actually in Kabul at the time um, and was able to, he was actually, he stayed in the airport and he has a US passport. So he was like ferrying people in, didn't sleep for four days, was kind of truly a hero. Um, and then sort of tag teamed one of our other employees who did the same, slept inside the airport for a week and basically made, um, who's a Afghan employee who also has a US passport, who was in Afghanistan at the time, kind of seeing family members for the last time. That was a little bit of the, the impetus. And what it really took is those people inside the airport making relationships with US military personnel and the different layers of US military personnel. So um, they had to one, get by Taliban and they were Afghan. And so that was in some ways a little bit easier because they spoke the language um, and then getting by the Marines, the army, 
um, and the various layers of military personnel that were on the ground. And then creating in a in a situation of chaos, developing those relationships. And, and so then when we organized convoys, which we started doing, um, it was it was an evolved effort. So at first, on August 15th, maybe it was 16th, we there were um, employees just going to the gates because by then people were being let through. We had employees like just a handful that had US passports, including the two that I just mentioned, who were helping not only SIR employees, but other people just get through these gates with their US passports, saying like, they're with me. And they probably got hundreds of people through wow. that way. Um, and that's not counted in our number. <laughs> so that was that was the first response. Then maybe a few days later, I really wasn't sleeping. So my memories of like, as no one else was either, right? None of us were sleeping. Um, so my memory's like kind of fuzzy. But a few days later, we realized we had to change tact and um, go in through cars because I had heard that that was how the Qatari ambassador had gotten out. And I'd had a friend. It was all ground, like, um, not ground truth, but essentially it was just you, you needed to have people on the ground assessing what was happening. And I mean, it was so crazy. Like we had to pay bus drivers and there was no money in the country. So I had to like reach out to friends who had gone and buried their dollars in some park and they went and dug up their dollars to like pay the bus, you know, and Afghans are incredible like this. Like if you have those relationships, you can borrow money like that and like we will pay you back. And that is essentially what we did. And so, um, that was how we paid the bus drivers and we organized buses from the Serena Hotel into the airport. And so I had colleagues who were, I wasn't part of this, but colleagues who were orchestrating with the, the State Department. There was an official sort of approval process at that time with the U.S. government to get convoys in. Um, but it was obviously incredibly challenging. And we got the first convoy in. The second one took us four days of people sitting on buses and that's like a harrowing story in and of itself and someone one of our team members will probably write a book on it someday because it was truly um unbelievable but we ended up getting a second convoy in probably i think it was the last convoy that got into the airport um and that was actually taliban that let us in like that was i attribute that to taliban they our experience with them at the airport was they were trying to take control of the situation and they were um, actually cooperative in some ways. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting. It was obviously there were U.S. personnel inside that were really critical to the effort. Um, but in the end, it was Taliban. Yeah. So then um, obviously eventually HKIA shuts down um, mm -hmm. and you guys need to pivot. Right. So how mm -hmm. did that work, uh, switching from HKIA up to Mazar Sharif? So um, we had kind of done the really awful thing of triaging our employees. Um, so essentially first layer of risk, second layer of risk. And then and so the the um, we had gotten maybe the first layer of high risk people out on the convoys. And I, I will just say it wasn't only Sayara employees. So we were working with other organizations. I want to be 
as clear as I can. There were journalists, there were women at risk on these convoys as well. And so we were, um, we weren't only getting Sayara employees out, but on each effort, there were a portion of Sayara employees and there was a designated Sayara employee who was leading the effort. Um, and that was really critical. And so by the time H. Kaya shut down, we still had our sort of second and third groups that um, really felt betrayed by us because we didn't get them in. And that was so heart-wrenching for us as a team. Like we were all exhausted. Getting that second convoy into the airport was truly like a 90 hour insane experience. And so there was really the sense of like, well, how much more gas in the tank do we all have? And can we actually do this? And so, um, and we weren't sure, like Mazar wasn't necessarily an option at the point. So I started working on a plan to actually bring people to Pakistan because I was here. And so I felt like I could orchestrate that. And I'm really glad that didn't happen <laughs> because so many people were kind of left. Um, like I know other groups that sort of did that and it ended up being, I don't fault them for it, but it ended up being a really challenging thing because there was really no clear forward path. Um, so right as I had designated two bus leaders, I was kind of doing this on my own, this particular little part. Um, I had designated bus leaders that I knew and trusted. They were, we had hired the buses. Um, we were, um, the people were on the bus, like people that were really close to me, like drivers who weren't necessarily directly at risk, but I felt personally very responsible for because they had taken such good care of me while during my time in Afghanistan. And so we had loaded everyone on the bus and they were literally driving towards the border. And our executive director or our CEO calls me and he's like, I have planes in Mazar Sharif. I was like, okay, all right. And then I kind of sat for a second and I was like, what should I do? Should we, he was like, I don't know if they're going to get out. We don't have the approvals, but I have the money for planes. And I actually wasn't part of those conversations, but I think he had teamed up with the Blumenthal team at that point and Tina Fey and some of these other um, sponsors. And so I sort of sat and was like, okay, this is, even if it's maybe not as certain, the outcome is certainly better and more sure than Pakistan. So I called my bus leaders and I was like, turn the buses around because they were going south towards the spin Boltak border. And I was like, go north towards Mazar. So they turned around and I think they were quite happy because um, there was a, there was really a sense of like, we're not given the fair treatment. We, we weren't, um, you guys didn't organize charter planes for us. You know, there was a sense of like, yeah. we're sort of second tier and that didn't feel good. So that was a hopeful moment. It took, I don't know how many hours, maybe I'm wrong, but I think about 15 hours because they were already had been driving south, I think. Again, my memory is fuzzy, but they arrive in Bazaar. And by that time we've teamed up with some other groups. Um, and so we have to find them a hotel, a place for them to stay. And we're thinking maximum they'll be there a number of days. That group was there. It took us one month to get each plane out. So the first plane was four weeks of negotiations, fighting, logistical failures, approval failures, and then the same thing for the second plane. Um, and so they arrived, I wanna say like September 1, and I think the first plane got out 
something like September 27th and the last plane got out at the end of October. So it was a it was a harrowing effort and they really there were babies born during that time. And I'm saying things that a lot of people experience, right? There were a lot of other teams in Mazar dealing with similar things, but that was that was our if you want, I can go into some of like the craziness of getting the planes off the ground. I don't know if you want me to do that. Yeah, I mean, all the details are so fuzzy now. I mean, when I was working on getting the my third family out, the Pyman family, and you know, H. Kaya shuts down, and in my head, I'm like, that's it. You know, this is over. And then um, heard that you guys in Blumenthal, Senator Blumenthal, were working on options to get planes out of there, and. So I remember they get on the shuttle and they have, you know, this long shuttle up to Mazar Sharif through like some crazy amount of Taliban checkpoints. And I'm just like, gosh, this is just the worst thing ever. And then, yeah, I mean, just all the mayhem of them, you know, bouncing from safe house to safe house up there and just what a crazy month that was. Yeah. Yeah. But I will say as much as I've criticized the the U.S. response, I will say that there were that Mazar-e-Sharif operation, those planes would not have gotten off the ground without critical support from U.S. military personnel in Al-Udaid Air Base and um, State Department officials in the Doha task force that were helping us coordinate. And they really like broke rank, did the right thing, didn't take orders, went beyond their job descriptions. And it was like, it was really an incredible it was horrible, but that part was like, we haven't all failed. Like we are all having to step up because the top has failed, like really the top has failed. And so we are having to go through these um, efforts and we are having to break rank and we are having to do all these things, but it was pretty incredible to watch people, to people, um, to watch people do that. So while we can criticize the, the administration's effort, I think, the efforts of ordinary Americans, military personnel, and then high-level State Department officials was really inspiring. Yeah. Well, you guys saved a lot of lives, obviously, that month. How many people got out of Mazar Sharif? So we had two A380s. Um, and I'm trying to remember, I think on an A380, you can fit, I think there's 360 seats. Um, and they were like, you can pile on people, not in seats. So I think we had like almost 400 people on each flight, including babies. If if I'm if my memory serves again, those numbers could be a little bit off. Um, but we had we, there was like calculating lap infants, calculating how many people could sit in the um, in the galleys, things like that. So um, yeah, I want to say like 750 or 800. That's incredible. Well, I know those people thank you, and we we certainly thank you for that effort and everything you guys are still doing. Um, to wrap this up, where can people find you guys uh, and donate? So the Uplift Afghanistan Fund has a easily accessible website, and there's a number of um, categories that people can can donate to. So resettlement, um, humanitarian relief. I really encourage people to to donate to humanitarian relief. It will go directly into Afghans' hands for the specific needs that they are facing. Um, and they can also reach out to me directly, Alexa at upliftafghanistan.org. Um, I'm happy to to talk with people about the best way to support.
that's really incredible. Thanks so much, Alexa, for being here to talk about this really impactful work from, from the beginning until now. Um, we want to close by doing what we always do at the Afghanistan Project, which is giving a voice to the people of Afghanistan about the ordeals they've undergone during almost two decades of war and their country's tumultuous return to Taliban rule. So today we're sharing the story of an Afghan lawyer whom we're calling Zia Ola to protect his identity. Zia Ola qualified for a priority two referral to the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, but like many P1 and P2 applicants, as we talked about today, he has yet to be processed and he's living in fear on an expired visa in Pakistan. This is Zia Ola's story and these are his words. Dear Beth and Michael, I am Zia Ola. I have a family of five sons and three daughters and was living in Nangarhar province, Afghanistan. I provided faithful and valuable service to the United States government and to US organizations, which exposed me to ongoing serious threats during both the period of performance and today. My visits to project activities in Kandahar, Nangarhar and surrounding provinces led to direct exposure to anti-government actors. My outreach with village level elders had the objective of building their capacity while fostering closer linkages to district governments. The organization I worked with was considered a direct threat to the legitimacy of competing sources of dispute resolution and governance from the Taliban and other anti-government elements. Additionally, the Taliban got hold of all the documents of lawyers working with USAID funded associations. My lawyer's license number is included in the documents. I am completely afraid that they will kill me like other lawyers. I was also a lecturer at Nangahar Province University. I was a well-known person because my activities with the international community were visible to the people. However, in the presence of American and NATO forces, the terrorists could not kill me. Unfortunately, elements of the government and human rights kidnapped one of my sons. After a long period of imprisonment, my son tried to escape from the terrorists. During the escape, my son was ambushed and he was shot with marbles in his chest. They thought my son was dead, but he was injured and survived after much treatment. Due to the popularity of these human act of my activities, I could not live in Afghanistan and I was very afraid that the Taliban would be able to kill us because the Taliban had given me and many of my colleagues death warnings. As a result of these cruel actions, my two colleagues died. I was saved by taking many precautions and living in secret. I kept changing houses inside Afghanistan, fearing the Taliban's house to house searches. I tried to leave Afghanistan safely and finally managed to escape to Pakistan with my family. On May 27th, 2022, I entered Pakistan with a legal visa, but my period of stay in Pakistan has expired. Now I am living in hiding, which means that I am not safe here. You should know better that thousands of Afghani Taliban are currently living here. Their families are living here in Pakistan, and I am afraid of the Taliban in both countries. I was referred to the American Priority 2 program. It has been seven months since I got my PK number, and I have been awaiting processing in Pakistan for eight months. I am facing a very bad and unknown fate in Pakistan. Security and economic problems have caused mental anxiety for my little children and wife. I kindly request the U.S. government to help me in this difficult situation to look deeply and seriously at my P2 case and provide safe evacuation for me and my family from Pakistan as soon as possible so we can live in a safe country because I am afraid of the Taliban in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. Respectfully yours, Zia Ola. We're really grateful to Zia Ola for sharing his story. It really, I think, gives a face, um, maybe not an actual face, but gives us an idea of the people 
who are in Pakistan right now, what they've gone through. Um, so thank you, Ziaola. And for any Afghans who want to have their story considered for a future episode, please send us a detailed letter about your situation and let us know if you need to be anonymous to protect your identity. Any of that correspondence can be sent to our show address, which is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. It will be in the show notes along with all the other important information from today's episode. And once again, we want to really thank Alexa for joining us. This was a, an incredibly enlightening discussion. And we want to thank all our listeners for taking the time and supporting the people of Afghanistan by listening today. Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon. Thanks, Alexa. Thank you guys so much for what you're doing. This is awesome.